Welcome to Storytelling Breakdown. I'm Ben Clemmer. And I'm Caleb Meyer. So when Caleb and I first plotted out this season, we were planning to really only do one Batman-centered episode. Our first episode, The Joker in Media. We also weren't planning to record significant chunks of this season in your house, but times change. Indeed they do. The title of this episode is Denny O'Neill, Legend of the Dark Knight. And I started scripting this episode when I first heard the news that writer and editor Dennis O'Neill had passed away on June 11, 2020. He was 81 years old. His writing impacted comics, especially the world of Batman, so significantly, and it seems fitting that he and Batman were the same age. Batman debuted in 1939, the same year Denny O'Neill was born in St. Louis, Missouri. From that detail alone, you almost have to say that from the beginning, their destinies were linked. break up today's conversation into three parts, starting with the characters and creations of Denny O'Neill. There's some big names on that list. After that, we'll talk about some of the storylines O'Neill oversaw as an editor, some big moments to be sure, and then we'll wrap up with some of my favorite stories and encounters with Denny O'Neill the writer, and throughout we'll share some of the tributes we saw after his passing. Denny O'Neill is best known for his work at DC Comics, but that's not where he got his start. Time to look back at some humble beginnings. He graduated from St. Louis University with a degree focusing on literature, creative writing, and philosophy, all of which carries through to his later work. He joined the Navy and was part of the American blockade of Cuba during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and after he served, he worked at a newspaper in his home state. Eventually, he takes a suggestion from a friend that leads to Marvel Comics, not DC, or at least not yet. Denny O'Neill took what is called the Marvel Writer's Test. I'm picturing like taking the SAT, only the proctor is... Stan Lee, and instead of filling in the bubbles with correct answers, well, okay, that actually still works. O'Neill and any writer who took the test were given comic book panels with art, but blank speech bubbles. His work must have impressed because O'Neill was hired and wound up writing stories featuring Doctor Strange and the X-Men, among others. We won't be spending a ton of time on his contributions to Marvel Comics, though it's worth mentioning here that he created Yuriko Oyama, the X-Men villain Lady Deathstrike, who appeared in X2, played by Kelly Hu. Characters created for comics by Denny O'Neill have a habit of showing up later in other media. Which tees up our first section. The biggest name created by Denny O'Neill is... Raz al Ghul. So many memorable moments of the last 40 years can be traced back to Denny O'Neill's work. As a writer and editor, O'Neill created so many wells that other creators keep coming back to. And his creation of Raz al Ghul might be the well that runs deepest. As we mentioned in our Joker episode, Raz al Ghul also arrives pretty fully formed. He remains a brilliant tactician with iconic facial hair and an army of assassins, tempting Batman to achieve the darker version of his ideal. So for those of you who don't know, historically DC comic books of the 20th century are generally divided into Golden Age, Silver Age, and Bronze Age, 
The golden age of the late 30s, 40s, and early 50s gives us so many of the characters we still know today. The Silver Age starts in the mid-50s and runs the length of the 60s, during which a lot of characters got rebooted. The Golden Age gave us Jay Garrick as the Flash, the Silver Age gave us Barry Allen. We also saw crazier and campy storylines for many characters, including Batman. The stakes were low, the villains were wacky, and we get the Batman 66 TV series starring Adam West showing just how campy the Caped Crusader could be. Denny O'Neill had already jumped to DC Comics by 1969, and after doing work on Wonder Woman, Green Arrow, and Green Lantern, O'Neill began to write Batman stories with the goal of reinventing the character. Ra's al Ghul was created in 1971, and now serves as one sign signaling the beginning of a new, darker Batman storytelling, and the beginning of a new age. And that was the goal. Denny O'Neill, along with artist Neil Adams and editor Julia Schwartz, wanted to tell Batman stories that signaled a course correction, moving away from the image of the Cape Crusader and the beginning of the Dark Knight as we know him. There's a quote from comics historian Les Daniels that sums things up pretty well. O'Neill's interpretation of Batman as a vengeful, obsessive-compulsive, which he modestly describes as a return to the roots, was actually an act of creative imagination that has influenced every subsequent version of the Dark Knight. And that holds true to this day. In addition to reimagining the Dark Knight, Ra's al Ghul is everywhere. He gets name-dropped in the first five minutes of Batman Begins. Spoiler alert, he's also the one dropping the name. Liam Neeson does a great job with the character. And thanks to that appearance, and others in TV shows and video games, Ra's al Ghul is one of Batman's most recognizable foes. But he's cut from a completely different cloth than the Joker, Two-Face, or others who are around 30 years older. Plus, Ra's al Ghul brings with him an entire supporting cast. The most significant character on the list is, of course, his daughter Talia. Again, she's made it to the big and small screen along with her father. She had an even larger role in Batman Arkham City, which I think most consider to be the strongest entry in the Arkham trilogy. Her presence in Batman's world is even more significant given that without Talia, there's no Damian Wayne, born of their union in the early days of Batman's career. We lose major plot points in two Arkham games and two Nolan Batman movies without the Al Ghouls. We also have a couple of Batman allies introduced by Denny O'Neill that we haven't highlighted yet. Dr. Leslie Tompkins has appeared in and out of the comics as a friend of Bruce Wayne's parents, a physician like Thomas Wayne, and a confidant who knows it's Bruce under the cape and cowl. And while I've watched very little of the TV show Gotham, on that show she's portrayed by Marina Baccarin, who is perhaps better known to movie fans for her part as Vanessa in Deadpool. She also played Inara in Firefly, and of course, circling back to DC, Baccarin voiced Black Canary in Justice League Unlimited. Justice League Unlimited is a great opportunity to reference one of the many tributes to Denny O'Neill that stuck out. I'm reading this verbatim from Instagram. I need to take a moment to acknowledge the passing and honor the incredible career of comic book legend Denny O'Neill. As a comics reader since the 70s, his work is as synonymous with the form as Norman Lear's is with TV, and as progressive in its time. As a co-creator of Green Lantern John Stewart with Neil Adams, I owe him a personal debt. And that, of course, comes from Phil Lamar, who voiced John Stewart on Justice League and Justice League Unlimited. Again, considering how fantastic that show is and Lamar's performance as Stewart, it shows where, again, O'Neill's presence is felt years after the comic books he wrote went to print. That show is not the same if you take out the Green Lantern John Stewart. And the creators of all the animated universe shows always found ways to pay homage to the source material. Episodes like Appointment in Crime Alley, where they introduce Leslie Tompkins, pull plot lines from the original comic book source material. In Batman Mask of the Phantasm, Bruce is doing some detective work in the Batcave and mentions O'Neill Funding Corporation and Adams Tool and Die. Each interpretation still pays respect to the work that was done at the end of the Silver Age and the beginning of the Bronze Age. We still have characters to mention, both created by O'Neill and maybe more importantly impacted by him. There's some plot lines that Denny O'Neill brought to comic books that were heavy and remain memorable to this day. And we really should start once again with The Deepest Well, A Death in the Family, 
the storyline that killed Jason Todd, the second Robin. That sticks with us because that moment is so viscerally violent. Jason Todd dies in an explosion, but he's beaten within an inch of his life with a crowbar prior to that. The animated film Batman Under the Red Hood opens with this scene in flashback, and we hear John DiMaggio's take on the Joker. The movie version also includes Ra's al Ghul, even though he wasn't in the original comic book. Denny O'Neill wrote a postscript for the trade paperback I have of the story, and it has to appear at the end because at that point we know that Jason is dead. It was 1988, Denny O'Neill was the group editor for the Batman titles, which at that time were only two, Detective Comics and Batman, and DC knew that they had the technology needed to pull their readers on a particular question or topic, and O'Neill writes that they knew they couldn't use that technology for the first time on something trivial. Jason Todd had only been Robin for five years. His popularity was uncertain. The end of Batman number 427 showed Jason caught in an explosion, and readers only had 36 hours to call one of two numbers to decide whether or not Jason lived or died. It made it so O'Neill could say that we didn't kill Robin, the readers did. How close was it? 5,271 votes to save Jason Todd, 5,343 to kill him off, less than 100 votes separating. Oh, that hurts. And O'Neill goes on to say that he had two copies of Batman number 428 in his desk, depending on how the vote went. And one of the votes to keep Robin alive was his. The media firestorm at the time was incredible. They fielded calls from journalists for days because this was a time when something like the death of a character in a comic book actually made waves. Doomsday didn't kill Superman until 1993, and death and rebirth in comics now is a pretty regular thing. No one's ever really dead. Of course, it's crazy they got that kind of response pre-internet outrage. And think about where things went for Jason Todd after that. Think about his second life as the Red Hood, as the Arkham Knight. A death in the family remains one of the most iconic Batman stories to this day, and again falls during a time when Denny O'Neill was the group editor. Every story Jason has been used for that keeps him relevant goes back to O'Neill. And while Superman got killed in the 90s, the Batman story arc happening around the same time was Nightfall. Bane breaks Batman's back. And John Paul Valley took over as Batman. Azrael was another Denny O'Neill creation. And again, we have to consider the timing here. There's so many parallel universes and continuity-spanning crisis events in comics that we've had Dick Grayson as Batman, Thomas Wayne as Batman. We had the entire run of Batman Incorporated. It seems unusual now that the idea of someone else in the cape and cowl would be groundbreaking. But Denny O'Neill was the one holding the shovel for so many plot lines we still remember. Plus, you have No Man's Land right at the end of his time as an editor, in which, after Gotham City has been hit by an earthquake, it's been cut off from the rest of the world and the people of Gotham have to fend for themselves. The Dark Knight Rises definitely pulled from that and Nightfall, when trying to create a worthy follow-up to the Dark Knight. And they went back to the well for Raz and Talia al Ghul. It's worth noting that Rises is usually viewed as the worst of the Nolan trilogy. It's trying to do way too much. Nightfall and No Man's Land each took a year of comic book storytelling to complete across dozens of, if not over a hundred, individual issues each. The narrative elements of Bruce having to watch his successor and then return to battle that successor are the final two-thirds of the Nightfall story. Bane breaking Batman's back happens at the end of the first third. And No Man's Land is so complicated with different factions and alliances as cops and criminals all try to survive a year in isolation. Oi, let's not talk about isolation. One last thought on No Man's Land, though. The first several issues that set up the different factions and characters involved, they were written by Bob Gale, one of the writers of the Back to the Future trilogy. That creative team was loaded. So we're talking about Denny O'Neill's legacy, and we've looked over characters and plot lines, but I can't help notice you have a stack of books with you here, Ben. So, how about we talk about Denny O'Neill as a writer? What are some of your favorite titles from him? 
Part of why I think Denny O'Neill was remembered so well is he had such a complete toolkit. He was a great editor and manager during some iconic years of the 80s and 90s Batman stories. But he also was just a great writer and storyteller himself. First, I want to go back to 1989 and remember how I mentioned that there were only two Batman titles when they killed Jason Todd. That lasted almost another year. Tim Burton's Batman came out in 1989, and by the end of that year, DC added what is labeled here as the first new solo Batman book since 1940. He'd appeared in World's Finest and Justice League and plenty of other places. But in 1989, issue number one of Legends of the Dark Knight came out. The inspiration for the name of this episode. For good reason. Now think about who's active around this time. Frank Miller gave us The Dark Knight Returns in 1986 and Year One in 1987. Legends of the Dark Knight would go on to have writers come onto the book like Grant Morrison, Doug Mensch, and James Robinson. Dwayne McDuffie wrote a couple stories later on. But if you're starting the first new solo Batman book since 1940, Denny O'Neill was the man to write it. The story is called Shaman. I don't even have a copy of the original first issue. They did a series of multicolored reprints. I have the yellow one that tells the same story, but doesn't have the original cover. Each cover shows the previous central image shattering to reveal another below it. It's just so cool to see them all together. And again, we're only two years removed from year one when this comes out. It feels like a fantastic interpretation of Batman's origin story that doesn't invalidate any other versions. Bruce Wayne traveled the world seeking the skills he would need to fight crime. And this book is one of the best I've read that builds on that idea. It's also a bit of a mystery, so I don't want to give anything away. The next one you've got there is called Venom, which on the surface sounds like an encounter with Bane. And I thought the same thing when I bought it in my teens. This is Legends of the Dark Knight, issues 16 through 20. They came out roughly two years before Bane's debut. The Venom storyline here actually deals with addiction. Early in the story, so I don't feel like this is a spoiler, Batman fails to save someone's life. A little girl drowns because he wasn't strong enough to move a piece of debris to get to her in time. And that winds up being the catalyst for Batman experimenting with a type of performance-enhancing drug. And the story is about addiction and recovery. It's probably one of the best in the whole run of the book, and it wasn't the first time O'Neill had written an addiction storyline centered around major DC heroes. In a story called Snowbirds Don't Fly from 1971, O'Neill and Adams wrote another story where Speedy, Green Arrow's sidekick, is battling drug addiction, a story arc that would be used in Arrow years later. Though it was actually in a published Green Lantern comic book, the two were paired up in many O'Neill Adams stories, and that relationship between Green Lantern Hal Jordan and Oliver Queen resonated through the way both of them were brought back and explored later. Hal Jordan and Oliver Queen both died in later comics, and when they were brought back, Quiver by Kevin Smith, which brought back Green Arrow, featured Hal Jordan heavily. Brad Meltzer took over the run after Smith, but also pulled from the O'Neill Adams Green Arrow Green Lantern team ups for some of his story elements too. And finally, when Hal Jordan was resurrected in Green Lantern Rebirth by Jeff Johns, the relationship between Hal and Ollie was front and center. Because Hal hadn't just died, he'd gone bad. Corrupted by the fear entity Parallax, and it might feel like we're out in the weeds a little bit for someone mostly remembered as a Batman writer and editor. But Johns also pulled from the O'Neill Adams work. The one hero whose faith in Hal Jordan was never shaken was Oliver Queen. And considering how long ago those books came out, that's some staying power. That cover is wild. That's definitely not Neil Adams either. No, this is a question quarterly that's basically like a mega issue. One storyline in a single book rather than broken up over several. The question is another one of those urban crime-fighting detective types that Denny O'Neill wrote so well. And this one is drawn by Dennis Cowan, who I got to meet at one of the comic cons in Fort Wayne probably almost a decade ago. When I handed him the issue to sign, and again, it's from 1990, he just went, that takes me back. 
Well, it looks like we're going to wrap up where we started. Tales of the Demon. More Ra's al Ghul, I assume? The first story in this compilation inspired the first Batman the Animated Series episode to include Talia and Ra's al Ghul. The second issue inspired the second episode. There's so many threads from the early O'Neill Adams Ra's al Ghul stories that writers keep coming back to. Because again, it's the era we all kind of hold up now is where the prototypical Batman storyline started. The way Batman thinks, problem solves, fights, everything we know about the character's mindset today goes back to Denny O'Neill. Before you and I started plotting this episode, I didn't realize how important Denny O'Neill is to so much of what I've experienced of Batman and all of these characters. You also sent me the tribute that Neil Adams paid to his friend and collaborator. Yes, I'm pulling from Instagram here again. There's a wonderful photo of the two men together, and I'll paraphrase, but it starts with, Denny O'Neill has died after having filled our lives with the pleasure of his work. Why was and how was Denny so special and important? Like Hemingway, writing as a result of the life you led before setting pen to paper. Denny was a reporter on the night beat. His life wasn't filled with monsters, ray-blasted cities, exploded worlds, and the like. His was a dirty underbelly of urban sprawl, domestic violence, and bloody hospital emergency rooms. And when Denny wrote comic books, he did not forget any of that for one minute. Personal violence in dark places peppered his work and made it personal to the reader. Denny O'Neill changed comics for the better. Could be time to relearn some of those lessons. Lessons for which Denny was and remains the best teacher. He then goes on to recommending what I have been doing a lot lately, going back and rereading a lot of Denny O'Neill's work. More than anything, it's been a joy to go back and realize just how much Denny O'Neill is responsible for my comic book collection and my love of the medium and stories within them. He's on a Mount Rushmore of Batman writers. And some of the old creators like Bob Kane and Bill Finger are obvious inclusions, though that gets a little fuzzy on fighting for credit. I'd say Paul Dini deserves to be up there with his breathing new life into the Mr. Freeze origin story and the creation of Harley Quinn, now that she's everywhere. And when you consider those two things, who did the writer create and who did the writer redefine? Denny O'Neill holds a special place in the world of Batman and the world of comic books. You're leaving out one important detail. Didn't you get to meet Neil Adams at Indiana Comic Con in 2019? Yes, I did. And that was, that was so cool on several levels. I don't remember exactly what I said to him because I think I was a little bit starstruck, but I said something to the effect of, thank you for everything that you and Denny O'Neill created and making it something I got to experience as I grew up. Now keep in mind, Neil Adams is 79 now. He wasn't even 30 when he and Denny O'Neill started collaborating. And his response was something like, same here. For our spotlight portion of this episode, we're going to hear from a friend of the podcast who you've already heard from. Kurt Remke composed our theme music. He is the creator of the app Soundwalk, and from the first time I heard Kurt's work, I knew he had a love of gaming and audio. The music, the ambiance, the worlds that audio can help create. Now to shine the spotlight on one of these worlds, here's Kurt. As a developer of video games and all things interactive experiences, I often listen to interviews and talks from creatives that I look up to. While I'm constantly taking in new thoughts that could help me do my thing more effectively, there's one talk by Charlie Kaufman that has echoed through my mind ever since I watched it a few years ago. It's his BAFTA and BFI lecture series talk on screenwriting. 
In it, he highlights the importance of writing in a way that takes full advantage of the medium through which you're intending to tell your story. He recommends that you ask yourself as a screenwriter, why are you telling your story for film? Are there other art forms that would better convey the themes you wish to express with the piece you're writing? If so, maybe you should write it for that medium. If you're making a film, write something that has to be a film. Well, I'm here to highlight a video game that would hold up to Kaufman's standard, and it is Inside by the studio Playdead. Inside is a game written on the foundation of everything we expect to get from a puzzle platformer video game. You know the story, Mario is on the left side of the screen and Princess Peach is all the way to the right. In between is the fun. Enemies get in the way, maybe some puzzles, even a secret here and there to reward thorough adventurers. Inside has all these things, but Inside is no Mario. This game isn't only trying to entertain us, it's trying to teach us something important. In literature, a contemporary writer will often quote from a classic in order to build their new ideas on a foundation that has merit and weight in the reader's mind. If a writer roots their story in some familiarity, the audience has a way to internalize it and feel like they are safe in the direction that it is taking them. Great video games do the same, but do so by taking advantage of the learned expectations of the player built by games of the past. It's a sort of muscle memory language that is learned through gaming, and Inside uses these player instincts to deliver something truly special to the video game medium. Where it truly shines, though, is that Inside also asks you to look at the muscle memory of your life outside of the video game world. We'll dig more into that later. Playdead starts Inside in a familiar place. The player, a small nondescript boy, is standing in a dark wood positioned to the left of the screen facing right. As the player's muscle memory kicks in, they find the boy running through the trees, occasionally hiding from tall, uniformed figures with guns and attack dogs. The first time the player makes a mistake and gets seen by these people, the stakes of the boy's mission are laid bare as he either gets mauled to death by a dog or shot by one of the figures. The action is so intense towards the beginning of the game that the player will likely not have had a moment to wonder for too long why this boy is in this situation to begin with. Once the action lets up a bit and these questions are allowed to sift through the player's mind, it isn't long before the boy enters the limits of some sort of warehouse district. This must be the boy's mission, to enter this area, but for reasons completely unknown to the player. This is Playdead controlling the player. Since this is a puzzle platformer, the player has known to move forward, to the right. But one element that the player usually knows in these types of games is missing. The why. Why is the boy risking life and limb to go into this warehouse? It's important to note that an alternative title to this game could easily be Control. In the warehouse, the player finds that the machines are taking over the bodies of other people who are essentially reduced to mindless husks that perform tasks for the machines. When you unplug these machines, the husks slump over and are no longer controlled by the warehouse. The game uses this as a puzzle mechanic, allowing the boy to take over husks and move them around to help him get past sentries or through doors. This mechanic starts to address the elephant in the room, and reveals the secret sauce of why this story is so unique to games. The player is controlling the boy. As the boy's story starts to unveil a plot about machines taking over the minds of people, the player might start to ask themselves whose side they're on in this game. 
Another feature of a typical puzzle platformer is a secret collectible. Since these games largely rely on a player moving forward, to the right, through the level, the game will often hide something that rewards players for finding secret passages off the obvious path forward, often taking you down or back to the left. Usually in a platformer, these types of secrets will give the player some sort of special power for a few minutes or give them some sort of currency to use to buy power-ups for their character. But because Inside's writing is driven by the main character's mission, and because that mission is left as a mystery to the player, the purpose of these secret collectibles are also completely lost on the player. As the boy backtracks through a secret passage, he'll come upon a yellow cable that leads to a small capsule that looks like a landmine. When the player interacts with these capsules, the boy grabs the plug and pulls it off, causing the capsule to let out some steam. Again, the player has no clue what this boy is up to here. What are these capsules? Why do they need to unpower them? The player will then think to themselves, well, I guess I'll keep looking for these things. It's a puzzle platformer. It's what I should do. The game's mystery culminates in a moment that struck me like very few moments in games ever do. The moment the player has been waiting for since they were getting shot in the woods at the very beginning of the game. What is this boy doing here? What's the mission? Well, the answer starts with a bang, and the game's pacing skyrockets for a good 30 or so minutes, before abruptly ending in a very confusing moment of calm. So when I sat at the end of the game and the credits were rolling, I couldn't help but feel like I had done something wrong. The ending feels like a bad ending. And by that, I don't mean that it wasn't satisfactory, but just that I felt like the ending was punishing to the boy. That doesn't seem right, I thought. What happened to this boy is wrong, and I was complicit in it. How could I have unknowingly done so much damage, and yet so complicitly? Once the credits finish, the game restarts itself. Most games will drop the player back into the main menu with the option to replay with some added features, but Playdead intentionally forces the player to restart the game. This moment will likely leave the player with a new why. Why would you want to ever drag this boy through this horror again, only to find the same punishment in the end? Other players had that same question, but instead of putting the game down forever like I did, they decided to replay it and look for all of those secrets. Maybe the boy's mission isn't what he ends up getting in the game's true ending. Maybe if the player finds all of the secrets, they will find the boy's real mission. Well, I didn't do this myself, but I did look up a video of someone doing so. Apparently, if the player unplugs all the secret capsules, a secret door is unlocked. That door is under a trapdoor in a cornfield, just outside the main warehouse, where the whole endgame sequence is initiated. When the final secret door is opened, the boy finds a final plug. In the background are various screens and servers that are running to this plug. As the boy pulls the plug, the power to the screens die, and the boy slumps over. The game fades to black. The secret ending here is actually the true ending. One in which a player removes their control over the boy, and removes the possibility for the other more punishing ending. The game writers have manipulated the player into being an accomplice to a plot against the boy. As they move forward through the game world, the developers are controlling the player by using mechanics that they've learned through their whole upbringing through games. By sticking to what they know and is comfortable to them, 
the player ends up hurting this boy in ignorance. Whenever they backtrack and uncover secrets, they are fighting the game's control over them and this boy. Each secret capsule unplugged is another moment of them overcoming their learned preconceptions of what they should be doing and getting closer to realizing that they are being controlled. Once they finally pull the plug, they triumph over that control and in return are an ally to the boy. The player being controlled doesn't result in any real pain to them, as their control then relays all of the pain and suffering to the boy. Oppression is hard to fix if the oppressors aren't aware of the problem. This game is about a system of oppression and being ignorantly complicit to that system. If one can see the pain oppressive systems bring on others, they can see that they may have a hand in it and work to make change. This game can really serve as a lesson to all of us who have some control over others' well-being. Are you being controlled by learned misconceptions about how the world works? Are you blind to a privilege that may be hurting someone else in return? This game says that it is important to push against the comfortable and obvious path and locate and disconnect these controls on our minds. It isn't only important for ourselves, but it is most important for those around us who are negatively affected by that control. Our theme music is by Kurt Remke. As was that awesome spotlight. Thanks, Kurt. Our logo is by Daniel Church. Steven Stahoski joins us as our producer. Our podcast is hosted by John Dawkins and Wayne Chout Productions. Thank you for having us. Everyone has a story. These are some of our favorites. And this has been Storytelling Breakdown. SP Wayne Shout Productions. Wayne Shout. <laughs>